Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. Funny one on a lighter note. In 2012, Brazilian soccer player Ronaldinho was dropped by Coke after he was caught with a can of Pepsi in a photograph. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. That's That's job number one. Oh, man. That's that's what would happen to me. (laughs) Me, too. I was like, oh, oh, honest mistake. (laughs) It's all they sold. It's all they sold here. This is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley. I'm a contributing writer at Vogue Business and The Wall Street Journal. This week, Balenciaga and Gap have fresh headaches as they attempt to extricate themselves from close partnerships with Kanye, and now Adidas has broken ties with Ye as well. Then, luxury brands have been putting off Amazon for years, but thanks to a new partnership with reseller What Goes Around Comes Around, you'll now be able to find bags and accessories from the likes of Hermes, Prada, and Gucci on the luxury stores at Amazon. Then, we're thrilled to welcome Bayard Winthrop of American Giant to the pod. We'll cover everything from making hoodies that last a lifetime to manufacturing apparel completely in the U.S. and sourcing sustainable textiles for his brand. Rachel Kibbe of Circular Services Group is in New York. Rachel, how's it going? It's going good, Christina. Glad to hear it. And the CEO of Thrilling, Sheila Kim Parker, is coming to us, as always, from South Salem, New York. In the basement again, I believe. Hey, Sheila? (laughs) Banished to the basement, as always. (laughs) (laughs) The sound is good. (laughs) (laughs) That's what's important. So we promised last week, literally just a week ago, that we would not talk about Kanye again. But here we are, this cancellation of Kanye by just about every business that's been doing business with him in the last couple of years has real implications for fashion brands and how they interact with celebrities. So we need to talk about it and what happens with all of that Yeezy product that's out there. First, to catch us up, let's just summarize who's cut ties with Kanye in the past two weeks over his anti-Semitic remarks and other hate speech and actions. So, J.P. Morgan Chase, his bank, Gap, Balenciaga, Adidas, the talent agency CAA, Def Jam Records, Vogue Magazine, the film and TV studio MRC that was about to release a documentary on Kanye but no longer will. Even Twitter has banned him from the platform. Those companies cover literally everything Kanye pursues, fashion, music, film, TV, finance, and publicity, and it likely won't stop there. That, I'm not sure we've ever seen that kind of a reaction from the corporate world. Have we? Not that I can remember. The only ones I can remember are Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, you know, celebrities like that, where folks were quick to drop them universally across the board. It's been a long time coming. Um, And I I know we're all, the three of us are surprised that it's had to get to this point for companies to drop their ties with him when he's been saying problematic, harmful, racist, you know, stuff for years now. He also has been a really, this is, I'm putting my Wall Street Journal hat on here, right? He's been a terrible brand partner for many years. He, in the fashion industry, he couldn't consistently produce collections and get them into stores on time. I've been puzzling for years why businesses wanted to bet on somebody who was so risky, literally just from an operations standpoint. And they somehow, I mean, Nike 
they dropped him in 2013, or they split apart. I don't know who dropped who, but, you know, they, he, he left Nike and went to Adidas. Um, so he had four years with Nike that sold a lot of shoes, but apparently didn't go well, according to Nike. That, and that's like ancient history at this point. Yeah, it seems like he kind of bur- burns every relationship that he makes in, in a really – and it, he doesn't just cut ties. He creates a lot of sort of – drama and his collateral damage yeah, and and talks really poorly about people and the companies that have supported him and I think I was most interested by the Adidas part of this whole story for obvious reasons I think everybody was sort of we were all waiting over the last month for them to make a decision whether or not they were going to keep his contract in review whatever that means and I remember early early days, a month ago, when they put out that statement. And there was, did you all hear this? There was some sort of conspiracy that everything he was was doing with, you know, his platform was intentional to get out of that contract. There was a certain segment of people who were saying, oh, he's so smart. He's just doing this to get out of that contract. They have him tied up. And I think it's become clearer as he sort of becomes his destructive path doesn't seem to be just at Adidas. Did you all hear that? I did, and I didn't buy it for I a second. I did not hear that. That was a major part of his income. You know, yeah. I mean, if he, he employed, by the way, another sad uh, group of victims of this whole thing are several dozen people who he employs um, working on this thing. I don't know what comes of them now because he, you know, all, every stream of income that we're aware of that he has, other than royalties on past recordings, is cooked. I don't know how he's going to afford to employ those people anymore. Yeah. I think Adidas's reaction was probably the worst possible way they could have reacted to this. Because not only do they actually eventually have to lose all the money associated with the products, which was clearly the thing that they were trying to protect. Yeah. But now they don't even get any glory points for having canceled their contract with him because they were— it was so obvious they they were dragging their feet on it. So nobody thinks that they're profile encouraged. They still lost the money. Probably the worst reaction to this crisis of all the corporations. And their statements, their statement seems to be largely, oh, now that he's being anti-Semitic, it's like, well, what about when he was also being racist? And you know what I mean? It's just yes, like, exactly. it's very strange. And and I know that they're a German company. Uh, their founder was affiliated with the Nazi party and in fact almost shut down in the beginning until they, he, uh, that founder had a Jewish person sort of send a note of recommendation that he could continue. Let yeah. me should say that was decades ago. That's not recent history. But in uh, oh, affiliated with the yeah. original yeah, yeah. Nazi party, the original, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> not the <laughs> most, like not our, not our most diff- recent, the original. Well, it could be happening now. What you're saying. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's so, so true. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> Unfortunately, horrible. It could be happening now. So that, but then I, I was like, I think Adidas had. I remember news that they, you know, in 2020, over 150 of their employees spoke out about their internal culture of racism. And an assistant designer at their Portland, Oregon headquarters, Julia Bond, wrote a letter to them saying, consistent complacency in taking active steps against a racist work environment. They had had consistent complacency in taking active steps against a racist work environment. That was one of the things she said in her letter. And I think internally, employees put together a 32-page deck that they sent to Adidas leadership. This was during um, BLM. That must have been, if that was in Portland, it was their design studios because they're based in Germany. They had four demands, and I believe Adidas's response was 
two of them, and they were really not happy with Adidas's corporate response to their demands. They had demands and deadlines. And so this isn't new to Adidas to be pretty toned deaf around. It also isn't new to, I mean, this is one of the things we've seen repeatedly in the fashion industry from non-American companies who are not as attuned to the the issues and discussions going on in America right after after George Floyd. There was there have been several years of a lot of confusion while companies in Germany and Italy and France and elsewhere um, get up to speed quickly. Kanye was a hit maker. I mean, a $250 million line of shoes, that's a big deal. And the idea that potentially you could replicate that success at other brands, I mean, that's why they chased him. But Christina, you were arguing that you felt like brands should no longer have partnerships with celebrities or influencers. I would say they need to be a hell of a lot more careful about it. You know, again, we are talking about Adidas as though it's a company and just a group of executives maybe, but Adidas is made up of literally millions of shareholders some of whom you know, are retirees and depending on income, right? Like when we look at companies that are publicly traded and they make mistakes like that, they impact a lot of people. I'm not as upset as some people at Adidas going carefully and reviewing this. I'm going to assume that they've spent the last two weeks in a hell of a lot of meetings trying to figure out how to get out of this partnership or manage it in a way that they don't have to fire a large number of their workforces or unfortunately take the kind of haircut that they have. In the last five days, they've lost $2 billion in market cap. That's little people. That's the investors. I mean, there's some big people too who own Adidas stock, but everybody who owns Adidas stock has just lost a lot of money. And yes, the stock market has been bad, but Nike has added $4.7 billion in market cap while Adidas has lost $2 billion. I mean, that's a big shift and it's the last five days we know that the thing that's driving Adidas shares is this whole Kanye thing. So, yeah, it's not a small number of people that get impacted when companies make these kinds of decisions. And then come back, coming back to what you were asking me, Sheila, there have been warning signs about Kanye. Somebody reminded me earlier today on Twitter of a column that I wrote about him back in 2013, so that's nine years ago, where I was questioning his behavior and his inability to produce collections routinely and get apparel into stores um, as he had promised. That's nine years ago. These signs were, I wouldn't even call them warning signs. I couldn't understand why people were doing business with him. And then, but, you know, they get stars in their eyes, I guess. I mean, you guys know branding better than I. I still don't get it. It just seems so risky. The downside seems like Especially if you're a company. I mean, Adidas is a little different because they've had such a really like integral sort of almost long-term partnership now to the an integral to their business. Companies like Balenciaga just sort of I don't understand starting new partnerships with him. I know he had a long-term relationship with them none. The downside we've seen consistently for the last like 10, 15 years, him consistently do damage. Yeah. I, have to, I don't know. I'm not inside the room. The Balenciaga thing made some sense to me at the time because of the closeness between Demna and Kanye or Ye, and knowing how driven a brand like Balenciaga is by its designer. So if a designer like Demna says, I want to do this thing, there's not a lot of people that are going to step in between him and that. And there was a big benefit. I'm guessing when we had been watching Kanye really not come out with collections for Gap 
for two years, two and three years. I think it's three years, right? I mean, and there were a bunch of promises. Finally came out with a coat and then there was a hoodie, but it was really not very much product. You certainly couldn't call it full collections until Demna got involved. And suddenly you have Demna and Balenciaga getting involved and they come out with a first full collection. So I was assuming that Gap desperately turned to somebody who could manage and motivate Kanye, who's famously just redesigns and redesigns and redesigns and redesigns and never lets go, never lets things out of his studio. So I'm, but again, I'm I'm guessing, right? I don't I don't know that that was the case. I mean, I think it's it's a consistent pattern in Hollywood and in fashion, and, and you know, when you think you have a whiff of a chance of making money or of a project being successful, people will turn a blind eye to problematic behavior, and you see it over and over and over again. Um, and that's why you know a lot of problematic men <laughs> have have persisted in these industries and continue to have people work with them. It's funny. So I was Googling a celebrity partnerships that have been canceled um, just to, to get some reference. Well, originally I'd brought up, you know, Michael Jackson has, I mean, he obviously doesn't, but whoever is the benefactor of that estate has a Broadway play up right now. And um, I didn't know that. Yeah, I was okay. just look. I'm actually going to go <laughs> see my first Broadway play. And I, I saw, I was like, wow, okay, that's interesting. Um, so canceled celebrity partnerships, um, Lance Armstrong and all, like all of his partnerships, um, OJ Simpson and Hertz. <laughs> Michael Phelps in AT&T. I forgot about Michael Phelps. Um, Kate Moss in 2005 was dropped by H&M Chanel and Burberry for drug use. Cocaine. Yeah, drug use. 2017, Kendall Jenner dropped. Uh, well, I don't know if she was dropped by Pepsi, but she was canceled because of this. Um, she did this commercial where she comes in between police and protesters with a can of Pepsi, I believe, and people were not having it. So that that ad at least was pulled. Do you know what, though? Honestly, one of the things that keeps nagging at me is, so we, you know, we were talking earlier today, Rachel, you were looked and saw earlier this morning, you could still buy Yeezy Gap. Um, a couple hours later, it's gone. Like, it, you can't buy these products. You can't, actually. I noticed Essence doesn't have theirs up anymore, but StockX does. I mean, there's some of the resale sites. Well, the resale sites aren't going to take them down. I don't think they I'm will. I'm sure their value will only increase. Well, yeah. Actually, I saw a headline somewhere saying that there might be a gain. F- flight clubs, stadium goods, they're still selling them. I don't know, but um, what... There are warehouses full of completely finished products, Adidas's and Gap's and Balenciaga's, all three of those companies. Let's just like, I mean, from a sustainable perspective, is it right to just incinerate all that stuff? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I think five years ago, it's like, burn it, you know, just like in, in terms of principle. But now I'm like, I'm I'm seeing some of those comments in some of the sort of social media commentary and i'm like oh we don't we don't like to do that anymore and what and i mean for obvious reasons we shouldn't do that but when you have an instance like this where the product really shouldn't be on the market um what do you do and i don't think there's any good answers um I mean, to the ex- they're going to burn it. They're going to burn it. <laughs> they're absolutely yeah, incinerating they it. I mean, it's so much easier than any other alternative. And if they have an excuse to burn it, I I believe they will burn it, or at least downcycle some of it into insulation. If it's like a textile, like a knitwear or polyester, but um, the shoes, the pff, incinerated. Oh, and that was, Shilla put a really interesting Forbes piece into our Slack this morning. And it says in there, 
that they're going to that Adidas is going to rebrand the Yeezys right. as Adidas brand. Well, I don't know if that meant you can debrand and rebrand things. It's very time consuming, but what I was thinking is they may mean they're taking those styles and just putting their own logo on them in the future. I think that's really hard. But are you going to call us call it Adidas Boost then? I think that's so hard. I think that's really People hard. People love those they're, styles. They're so distinctive. The style is so distinctive. It's so obvious. And then I think it's really problematic, this European company taking Kanye's designs. I, I, I just think that treads into very uncomfortable waters, and I, I'm not sure they can pull that off. So the other big news this week was this partnership between Amazon and what goes around comes around, which is going to, as I read it, it's going to enable Amazon to sell a bunch of luxury accessories from brands like Chanel and Hermes that have refused to have their products on Amazon. Kind of an intriguing workaround. See what you did there, <laughs> Amazon? <laughs> gotcha! This is a total gotcha. workaround. <laughs> Got him. <laughs> it's so, it's, this is such an interesting one to me. I mean, first, I think from what goes around comes around, I'm a little bit surprised um, because they are very specific in particular about their partnerships and their brand image. Although from a business point of view, I think it makes sense. They obviously want to broaden their reach and get more customers and gain more revenue. So this will definitely help them do that. I'm also intrigued from Amazon's point of view. um, And there was an NPR piece a few years ago that had a poll of U.S. online shoppers. And they said 92% of online shoppers in the U.S. buy on Amazon. 92. 92%. So almost complete dominance. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And this was a few years ago, and I'm sure it's only increased from there. And that two-thirds of shoppers trust Amazon. Um, And I think mostly because of when Amazon says it's going to be there at 5 p.m., it's there by 5 p.m. Or earlier. And so... (laughs) Right, exactly. The thing that's interesting, though, is that the same survey NPR did, they found that the leading purchase online shoppers make in general are clothes and shoes, and that Amazon has a very small share of clothes and shoes purchases. So we've seen over the past few years, they've made a lot of announcements in fashion. They're trying to throw, I feel like, a lot of things at the wall, trying to see what sticks. I think they're obviously trying to get my share there. So if most people already shop on Amazon— I think the thing that they're trying to do here is to gain more share of wallet and to increase the amount of spend per subscriber. And it's very similar to Netflix's dilemma, which is they have almost total saturation and they want, Netflix will want to change the conversation from subscriber growth to revenue growth. So what you're saying is they have almost total market domination, everything but apparel. They're trying to go for that last bit. It's just funny. It seems it seems also sort of like a. Um, it's been the one category, especially luxury apparel, that like people have said no to them. <laughs> Lots of brands has had said no to them, and I think it, it's a little bit of a thorn in their side. So first of all, I have to say they they have done well at presenting. I've seen them do worse. Let's just say that at presenting apparel. What comes around goes around. Um, sort of e-commerce platform on Amazon looks very much like other luxury resale sites, the way that they've, the size of the product listing, sort of the cleanness of the presentation. I've seen them do not as good of a job before. Oh my God, they did some dreadful was laughable. Their early their early forays into luxury fashion were just cringe. And I think that was part that's been that stuck with them. 
That's And I think that's part of the reason why a lot of luxury brands have not trusted them, besides the counterfeit issue and all that. But okay, so there's eight brands on here. There's Chanel, Louis Vuitton, Gucci, Hermes, Godard, Dior, YSL, and Prada. They have two Prada items on there right now, which is just kind of a funny aside. So there's several hundred, <laughs> okay. two, two Prada, go get them. <laughs> folks. Go get them, folks. Yesterday and today, there was two items. Um, but they have, so there's several hundred units total, and they're supposed to ramp up to several thousand over the next few months. Um, and I looked at the price point. So you can get something for like $300. It's a tiny, tiny wallet. But so that's about the lowest. But the highest price is their Hermes bag that's about almost $20,000, which would be, it was just, I was like, how many prime points would you get for that? A lot. A lot of problem points for that. Mm. I mean, I wonder if there's anything more than $20,000 on Amazon at all. I don't think that they're trying to offer any kind of value here. I do, because I looked for that style. But let me explain what I mean. Amazon's core value proposition, in our minds, is, is associated with value in terms of pricing, pricing value, convenience, and you know, confidence in making the purchase. And so I think what's interesting here is, can you, I mean, to your reaction, Rachel, can Amazon, and, and Meta and Facebook has tried to do this too, stretch their brand to mean different things um, in different contexts? Can Amazon pull that off? Um, because it's not part of their core value proposition or, or how consumers interact or know the brand. And um, so that'll that'll be really interesting to see whether they can pull that off. Now, I do think on the e-commerce side, the the higher quality and execution, that's a lot to do with what goes around comes around, which has done e-commerce really well for a really long time. Right. And they've worked with ShopBop, who's a subsidiary of Amazon since it's apparently 2009, which surprised me. I didn't know that ShopBop had been selling resale since 2000. Yeah. I, so... And then they had dripped out products via ShopBop's platform on Amazon's main platform over the last few years, I guess, to test. I mean, Amazon is so considered. No partnership is ever like, oh, we just, you know, put it together in six months. I mean, there's always so much that goes on into the decisions they make. Can I just ask a really shallow question of this whole thing? Like, when I buy my $20,000 Hermes handbag, is the Amazon truck delivering that to me and leaving it on my doorstep? I don't think so. I think that what goes around comes around is going to ship it probably through their normal carriers, I think, because um, they do e-commerce now. Okay, so they're not using Amazon distribution. So then— I don't think so. So it's just a listing then. You don't get the exactly. advantage of— Well, so is a lot of Amazon in a lot of ways, right? This right, is drop ship, essentially. yeah. I also think, obviously, the thing that we're going to look out for is the response from luxury players. I do think that there will be a response. I don't think that they're going to be quiet about this. And I'm You sure. think Chanel is going to stay quiet about this? I yeah, mean, exactly. Chanel, the, the Chanel lawsuit is ongoing, by the way, with what goes around, comes around. So, like, I think the majority of the products are Chanel and Louis Vuitton um, that are up right now. So, I, I don't know if—but then they put out statements saying, like, everybody's fine with this. Yeah, so they're not worried. So, that maybe there's something we don't know. Yeah, and I'm sure Amazon's legal resources are obviously, um, you know, unrivaled. So there, I'm sure there's reason for their confidence. The Fashion Law had an interesting piece on it where Julie, who, who writes that, I don't remember the the law, but there's a law that was a decision that was passed that said that a brand's ability to control the price of their products is done, it ends at the first sale. But then she started sort of speculating that there could be other legal avenues not quite as clear that these brands could go after Amazon with. Yeah. 
I think what she was saying is there is sort of a loophole there where it's, you know, a brand no longer owns a product after first sale and they can't control who resells it. However, if the brand has very clear quality control around how that product is marketed and directives around it, then if the reseller does not follow those, then there's an issue. That's why I was looking at how the product was presented. You don't see any of, it's not making a ton of suggestions that you buy like toothpaste. It's not going to suggest to you on that area of the website that you buy anything else other than what's on it. Super interesting. Sheila, what do you think? How do you think other luxury resale players are going to feel about this? You mean in terms of the potential competition? I would be worried. (laughs) Really? Are you worried? I'm not worried because we're not necessarily luxury. We do have vintage boutiques who carry luxury, but our core is kind of in the $30 to $500 range, kind of that mid-market, mid-price, true vintage, quality, contemporary, high-quality contemporary. I would be worried if Amazon looked in my direction, I would be worried. (laughs) Um, I think they're savage. They're ruthless. I think they 100% want total world domination in every category. (laughs) Um, They're looking at health. They're looking at insurance. And so I don't think Amazon does something to be second best in the second best player. I think they do it to dominate that particular field. Now, the only thing that I think helps, that would give me some comfort, is that luxury resale has done really well with individual peer-to-peer platforms. And I don't imagine, I can't see Amazon getting into peer-to-peer yet. And so where are you going to get luxury at volume? You know, I'm not sure, unless you partner directly with the luxury brands, I'm not sure. So that's the only qualifier I would have, is that most of the luxury platforms are peer-to-peer and Amazon hasn't unlocked that capability yet or doesn't seem to be heading in that direction. What do you think, Rachel? I was just like, are most luxury platforms peer-to-peer? I was like, because I thought they have, most luxury platforms um, offer that service of authenticating. Yeah, but they're all sold by individuals. And so Amazon and allowing individuals to sell through their platform, that hasn't really happened Oh, I see yet. what you mean. It's consignment, right? Exactly. Because what, co- yeah. Yeah, that is a differentiator. I mean, they may they may decide to, you know, they're the best at e-commerce logistics and operations, which has been really challenging for for resale platforms. So, you know, so if they decided to become a warehouse to run a warehouse that receives individuals, I mean, that would that would t- actually let's, <laughs> let's not, not talk, talk about, about it. Now, like, okay. <laughs> that would totally upend the resale game. <laughs> As though the resale game needs any more difficulties. Yeah, exactly. Right now. I don't know, though. It's just so, I've got a grain of salt here because luxury is all about the brand names and the association. And putting Amazon on that, I just, I have questions. See, but that's why I'm, I'm interested just from like a business experiment point of view is like, can this brand successfully stretch? To luxury means experiential from, you know, to me and prestige. And that's not the traditional association with Amazon. So will it be able to stretch successfully over luxury? And they've Amazon has had that luxury platform now for two or three years, right? I can't remember when they launched. I know Oscar de Laurenta was finding it useful. Most brands wouldn't touch it. And they and a few brands had really bad experiences with 
um, the photography. and But it's not Amazon. It's what co- goes around and comes around. It looks very clean. It looks very similar to any luxury platform. This is m- sort of my concern almost. And and that bag, that Hermes bag is almost one of the, I looked up the style, the price point of the Hermes bag they're selling, that style is less than most on the market on other other luxury resale sites. Oh, so, I see what you're saying. You're saying it was cheaper than- So there is value. They are competing. I do think they are still competing on value in a luxury way. And people People shop for value when they're shop. Uh, oftentimes, when they're shopping um, luxury resale, they want that deal. Can you buy that Hermes bag on what goes around comes around.com too, or is it only listed? I'm curious. Yeah, whether it's exclusive to that platform. That's interesting. I hope that people will send us comments about their thoughts on this. I really want to hear our listeners and what their ideas are. So we want to welcome you, Bayard Winthrop, founder of American Giant, to the pod. Thanks for joining us, Bayard. Thanks for having me. By way of introduction, I want to note that I first met Bayard about, I think it was 10 years ago, give or take, when he was traveling around. He had a satchel that he unzipped. It contained a few samples of hoodies and sweatpants that he designed. He came to my office at the Wall Street Journal and pulled out the sturdiest hoodies I've ever seen. They reminded me of the old champion sweats that you used to be able to get at, at like in college, it would be, you know, your university name would be on them. And I think you may have to be like 50 years old to even remember those. It's been a long time since they were that sturdy. Bayard told me he came from a tech and finance background, but that his passion was to make these sturdy basics like they were in the old days and to make them entirely in America, soup to nuts, buttons, thread, zippers, fabric, sewing, everything. Do I recall that correctly, Bayard? You, you do, Christina, and you early on, uh, wrote a piece about us, and uh, you were wearing one of our sweatshirts. So maybe it was there was something digital about it. But we uh, we had an early interaction when the company was just getting going. So we have a long, long American Giant history that we share together. I don't even remember <laughs> what I wrote, but, but I became a customer. <laughs> I, know that. I do remember yeah, that. That's great. That's funny. Over the years, Bayard has become a sort of a divining rod for me when it comes to U.S. apparel manufacturing. He's been so adamant that the U.S. has not lost its ability Abilities to make clothes and footwear, and he can that he can get anything made here. During the pandemic, he enjoyed not having the supply chain headaches of people shipping goods from Asia and Europe. In one conversation, I think you were sitting in your car with your dog during that conversation. It was pandemic, and you couldn't you didn't have the oh, office. That's right. That may have been a different conversation, but at some point we talked, and um, I challenged Bayard thinking that the U.S. is unable to make luxury textiles. And I said, oh, yeah, what about Jacquard? And Bayard replied, what's Jacquard? So I thought I'd won my point. But in fact, Bayard came back a few weeks later and he'd found three, I think it was three, U.S.-based manufacturers of Jacquard. So the joke was on me. Bayard, I constantly hear from designers that it isn't possible or affordable to make what they design in the U.S. How do you find all these factories and American-made notions? And we're not just talking about fabric. You buy your zippers made here too, right? Everything. Yeah, I mean, we do. You know, we're not total purists about it, but we're pretty darn close. I think that, you know, you and I have talked about this, Christina, that we try to, whenever possible, to source entirely domestically. So, you know, 99%, 98% of the stuff that we produce is sourced from both fabrics and, and raw materials, trims, zippers domestically. But the question about why is that such a, a typical refrain about U.S. manufacturing, it's probably particularly acute in textiles, but but it's true more broadly about manufacturing that we've really suffered from, I think, th- you know, 30 or 40 years of 
psychological collapse as it relates to um, domestic manufacturing, particularly base manufacturing. High-tech manufacturing is hung in pretty well, but base manufacturing really, there's been a collective sense that it's not possible to do those things here. What's, what's base manufacturing? Just sim- simple manufacturing. Um, uh, labor-based, not high-tech. Uh, manufa- basic manufacturing, you think about, um, like, in, like in producing textiles. And really, the the reality is much more nuanced, as you and I have discussed repeatedly, about um, what is available here still. Um, Unfortunately, over the last 30 years, as we have allowed so many brands, particularly in apparel, to chase the cheapest means of production overseas, that has led to a corresponding weakening of investment in domestic textile production and a unreliable commitment from brands to make things domestically. So the combination of the two things has has resulted in a weakening domestic textile uh, capability, but it is still very much there. And it requires people to try and dig a bit, as we've discussed repeatedly, as we did with flannel, as we did with that jacquard exercise. We're actually just kicking off an exercise right now with corduroy. You know, that what you find typically is when you try and ask and, and network, that there is so many elements in the textile space that are still vibrant and still thriving. It just requires a bit of commitment and maybe uh, tenacity to figure out what's capable and how you can assemble the capabilities to still make things here. What has surprised you most that still is here? I, that's a hard question to answer. I, I maybe would answer it slightly differently, that it surprises me that we as a country have allowed ourselves to get into this dynamic where we um, vote into our laws um, these really important things that we've spent a lot of time and energy and, and focus on enacting, whether these are environmental laws or human rights laws or worker protection laws. And we hold, in my judgment, appropriately our domestic manufacturers to those standards. Um, and then at the same time, we allow our policymakers to create trade laws that allow our biggest brands, or most profitable brands, to ignore those laws and to produce products in places that don't necessarily have those kinds of protections in place just to drive their bottom lines. And, you know, I was asked on a, on a panel just the other day um, about whether um, I was a fan of unions and, and minimum wage laws. And my typical refrain to that or answer to that is it's an incomplete question. Because, of course, I support minimum wage laws. Of course, I think unions are forces of of tremendous good. But if all I'm being asked is we're going to hold domestic producers to these high standards, to pay workers living wages, to to support union labor, at the same time that we're going to allow our biggest brands to ignore those things and go overseas and produce in places like Xinjiang, you're putting domestic producers and domestic brands into a difficult position. So I guess that's the part that's surprising to me, that we've allowed ourselves to get to this place, um, which has had the sort of logical result of of a decaying capability domestically. So, so if, frankly, businesses are disincentivized to do the right thing, or not necessarily do the right thing. I don't even think that's the way to put it, but to produce here, should they want to. They're disincentivized to do that. I mean, corporations like people behave logically, typically, and particularly our, our public companies that have to answer to Wall Street um, and our politicians, frankly, that are that are, are looking at the next election cycle, are incented to do the most expedient things. And for public companies, that's oftentimes to drive the most short-term profit. I, I was just going to say that leads me to, to a question I really wanted to ask you if you're following any of the fashion bills on deck or those that may have passed already, like the Garment Workers Protection Act in California. What do you think of them? And I, I guess also, as you mentioned, sort of trade agreements and such, what do you think about separate fashion legislation as opposed to building in more protection in current legislation? Like, 
trade agreements, or should there be a combination of both? I think that's a few questions, but I'm just curious your your perspective. Yeah, and I'll probably I'll probably answer it maybe just directionally. We have to it, it, let's assert for a minute that we believe in the things that we vote into law, and we believe that we've got to address. My basic thesis is that we've allowed the United States to to get into a situation where. Um, we have this division happening where if you are involved in making things in this country, by and large, you're in a very difficult fight. We're really undermining uh, service and manufacturing and working class jobs um, because we have, in my judgment, politicians and to a, a great extent brands that are not don't have the incentives or the motivation to protect those jobs or protect those capabilities. So when we think about how we begin to return back to a place where there is more balance, um, we are investing in our domestic capabilities, that we've got good choices for consumers so that they can support brands that are doing things the right way and, and, and producing product that they can be uh, confident is consistent with their own values. We have to have a multi-pronged approach. And so it isn't enough to produce legislation, let's say, that raises minimum wage laws or that that has uh, worker protections, if it's not met with a corresponding tightening of trade agreements, if you don't do those two things in concert with one another, all you're doing is making domestic producers less competitive on the world stage. I'd say one time that I was sitting in a meeting with um, the CEO of, of Parkdale Yarns, which is a, a phenomenal private business that's the largest consumer of domestic cotton. And the CEO of that company, Anderson Warlick, who's been a great friend of ours over the years, was asked a question about whether he believed in free trade or not. And he paused for a second and he said, well, how about you define free trade first, and then I'll tell you if I'm supportive of it or not. And I think his point was that that we don't have free trade today. We've got a very unbalanced trade relationship with places like China. And so if I'm asking to be to, to compete toe-to-toe with yarn producers, textile producers that are producing in Xinjiang, no, I'm not supportive of that because the conditions there for, for human beings and the environmental protections are just not near non-existent. Are tariffs the answer? What, do you have, I mean, are you, are you lobbying? I'm not in D.C. <laughs> intentionally, but I think that my, you know, it's an interesting question, Christina, because you and I have talked about this over the years, that I, I did start off my career in finance. I, I moved pretty quickly into consumer products. You know, I, I kind of grew up thinking that every trade deal was a good trade deal and unfettered capitalism was good and for always the best way to go. I have a more nuanced view about that now. I think I, I look at, at at countries like Japan and uh, South Korea and Germany and Switzerland, where there are economies that have a lot more dimension to them, more protective trade agreements. But the result seems to be a service sector and a, and a and manufacturing jobs that are holding their own much more than they are in the United States. And so I think that it has to start with some um, trade protections, but then it also has to has to extend out to retailers. I mean, this recent news that I believe you all talked about with Walmart making a commitment, people tend to poo-poo Walmart. You know, Walmart is doing something, and um, that is worthy of praise. Whatever you may think of that brand in all its other ways, they're leading there. And, and when, you know, uh, retailers like Walmart and, and Amazon, I wish Amazon was taking a more forthright leadership position there. They can be tremendous forces for good. And that those two things together allow brands then, producers, whether it's uh, brands like Levi's and Wrangler or us or Carhartt or others to to begin to say, okay, we now have the the commitment and the reliability of legislation and some of the big retailers, we can begin to also make commitments and bend the curve a little bit. So I think it takes 
I frankly think consumers are the last in line there. I think right now we are doing a very poor job solving for choice for consumers. They, they don't have great visibility. They don't have, uh, there's not a great assortment of American made companies that are really committed to doing things consistent with American values. And so I think they're the last in line that we ought to be looking to. I think people often say, will consumers pay more, you know, at the, at the register for American made or for environmental causes, whatever it might be. Um, and there too, I think it's, it's a little, a little unfair to, to just to leave it at, at that. We've got to close the gap down, I think, a little bit for, uh, for companies, um, uh, how they're making things so the consumers have a bit more of a balanced choice when they go to uh, make a decision about what clothes they want to buy or, uh, you know, what products they want to consume. It's great to read interviews you did 10 years ago in founding the company um, and, and hear you now. Over all that time, you still espouse, you know, the same values, the same level of integrity, the same vision for your company. But I'm curious over that time, um, how has your business model changed or evolved in ways that you didn't expect or you were surprised by? Um, anything in your production processes that you had to maneuver that you were surprised by? I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for recognizing that. I think, you know, my, my feeling is that um, I'm going to get sort of philosophical for a moment here that we got to figure some stuff out as a country. I think, I think that we are really divided now. I think a lot of what's happening culturally is there really is, you know, uh, there's a, there's a, there's kind of two worlds that are merging. If you, if you live in places like San Francisco or New York and you've got a college degree, uh, you got a pretty good chance of, of, uh, living a decent life and passing on a better life to your kids. If you're stuck in, in the service or manufacturing sectors and maybe you have a high school degree and you're putting in an honest day's work every day, uh, you've got much dimmer outlooks. The opportunity to pass on a better life to your kids really is diminishing. And I think that we all share responsibility in that. And my feeling is that, uh, you know, some of the, the greatest people in the world are in the business of making things and they deserve the opportunity to have good, dignified jobs that last a lifetime and that uh, allow them to provide for their families in good and competitive and compelling ways. And I'm fed up with what I see as the, the bullshit in the fashion industry about uh, a lot of greenwashing, a lot of human rights washing, unwilling to actually do the things that are more difficult um, and to figure out how to really walk the walk that is consistent with what they purport on Instagram for their values to be. So I think when, you know, that's a fairly simple thing. I think there's an easy way to do it, which is making things in the United States. You, you get almost a freebie. You know you're being environmentally responsible. You know you're staying close. You know you're being consistent about human rights stuff. You're pay, paying minimum wage for your workers, all those great things. So I'm a big believer in that, and and the consistency of our vision from the beginning is is a result of that. It's a fairly simple insight, and as long as you're willing to commit to it and do something about it, it's pretty easy to stay consistent about it. But to the second part of your question, a lot has changed. Um, so you know, I was pretty naive getting into this. I, I, it was the first time I'd ever really made a total commitment, really to myself, about staying consistent with that. And in the beginning, as Christina has known, a lot of it was just trying to figure out how to assemble a supply chain that could produce the basic stuff, the T-shirts and the sweatshirts, before we even got into denim or flannels or, or uh, outerwear or any of these other things. But little by little, what you find out pretty quickly is because textiles are it's an interesting industry because there's very it can be very low capital investment and relatively high labor rates. So it's the first. Uh, one of the first sectors to offshore when trade agreements open up. Uh, people, because labor is expensive and because it's highly portable, you just can either buy or move a bunch of sewing machines. It's quite easy to go to Mexico and then to China and then to Africa, wherever the lowest regulations or cheapest labor might take you. 
Um, but if you invert that and say, well, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to really commit to staying domestic, then that opens up a bunch of conversations around uh, manufacturing engineering, efficiency, lean manufacturing principles, uh, using data, using um, looking at, at opportunities to shorten lead times and responsiveness to the market, lower inventory levels. And so we actually are in weirdly 10 years in we feel like we are just getting started at how we become a more compelling higher quality faster response more resilient uh, supply chain and manufacturing to just get our cost lower our efficiency higher our speed or get speedier get to market quicker that the i don't want to go too long on this though if it's interesting to you i'd love to because it's a passion of mine i think if you look at industries that have deployed the best manufacturing engineering principles, the Toyota systems, the lean manufacturing, continuous improvement stuff, there's examples across all industries of businesses that have, have stayed domestic, have built great brands. That's not happened in apparel. And so um, we are underway in that journey, and there's lots more gains. It's sort of a never-ending process to get better. Uh, but that, I think, has been um, an ongoing change, and I can get into that in more depth if you'd like. But um, that journey is a totally invigorating, inspiring one, and one that just feels like I, I equate it to yoga. It's like you could start start yoga, you never, ever, ever end. It's just you can always get better and better and better. And so I would say that's been the the most exciting piece about unlocking almost endless opportunities to make domestic apparel production more competitive, better, faster, more more affordable, all those things. Bayard, please talk more about that. It just occurs to me, it's one thing to do that when you own your own auto plants, and it's another thing to do that when you're working with a dozen different factories to make one product. Like, you've got to get them to cooperate with you and with each other. Don't you? Like, what are you working on? Yeah, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't um, appreciate the question. I, I disagree with the framing, though. I think uh, the automotive industry is is vastly more complicated with a vastly more complex supply chain that has to to deal with exactly the issues that you're highlighting. I think it's you know it's very encouraging to see um, industries like uh, like automotive or or brands like uh, Herman Miller who are able to really drive. Uh, very high quality, very complicated supply chains on a, a journey of kind of getting increasingly efficient. But if you if you step back and, and think about it, the most compelling reason to offshore essentially is you want lower regulations, primarily around environmental standards and pay, labor. And so, uh, but what do you get by staying domestic? Well, by staying domestic, you get a number of things. You get Intellectual property protection, which is not insignificant. You'd be pretty confident that you're not going to have to deal with anybody knocking your stuff off domestically. You get proximity to the market. You're very close. You can get, you know, we're, we're moving product oftentimes, and Christina knows this because I've bored her about it on, on a number of phone calls. But our sweatshirt, for example, travels about, depends a little bit on some variables, but about 400, 500 radio miles before it gets to the distribution center. I mean, that's just a tiny distance of, as opposed to crossing oceans and continents to get to you. So you're much closer to market. That unlocks an ability to be responsive. Responsiveness to market allows you to uh, lower inventory levels, not get stuck with what you're seeing right now, which is industries awash in dead inventory because they had to make decisions way in advance. 
uh, to make sure that they were paying the, the lowest possible price, but they paid for that with long, long lead times and very complex supply chains that it turns out are quite fragile. That when they break, they're very disruptive. So you should be able to be more reactive. You should be able to, to carry lower inventory levels. Our cost of power domestically is, is very, very cheap. Um, so all of those things together actually lower the differential in, in what, in what you're paying for by being overseas if you can optimize on them. And so as you get into that exercise and you start to think about getting faster, faster, faster and getting higher and higher on the quality side, um, you find that a lot of the soft costs that get um, that are hard to identify with a complex international supply chain come into a bit more focus, and you can you can you can build a capability that just is more competitive. I'll give you just sort of a silly example to bring that home, so we're not getting so technical about it. I tell this story a little bit that um, we have a relationship with our suppliers. Um, I got a phone call one morning. I'm up early. I got a phone call early uh, West Coast time from our fabric provider saying, "Hey, we've got a dye color that is looks like it's off." And I said, hang on a second. We did a three-way phone call about it. We had one of our developers uh, get on a FaceTime call, look at a color, ask them to run it back through and fix the problem and, and kept going. Typically, if that's happening in time zones and language barriers and different countries, oftentimes that product just gets produced. It gets onto a boat. You don't recognize that the pink is the wrong pink until it's actually landed in a port domestically. And that cost either gets passed on to, a, to the customer in a color that you didn't want, or they've got to liquidate that product. You can avoid those things if you can optimize the relationships and the proximity of a domestic supply chain. Your story, uh, your commitment to integrity as a business and your commitment to slow growth reminds me so much of um, Patagonia and the Chouinard um, story. And as you know, he made this stunning decision this year to give up his and his family's ownership of Patagonia to a trust dedicated to fighting climate crisis. Is that a mo model other companies should follow? He is obviously a, a giant in that regard. And, and we certainly looked at Patagonia as a, as a great example to aspire to. You know, I think the clarity of purpose there, the long-term view, um, the, the commitment to quality products and, and staying as consistent as you can to your value structure um, is something that we talk about on a regular basis. They're not alone. There are a lot of other companies out there that we look at that we think are, are also inspiring. Chobani is one and Dairy. Herman Miller is another that, that have sort of set a very high standard. But I think you know, Patagonia has, they really are a great example to look at about the challenges that public companies face um, versus the opportunities that private companies have to really act in a way that is building long-term value um, versus short-term. And um, so it's obviously a very generous comparison. I don't think we've earned that comparison, but but um, we certainly look to him and Patagonia often as a, as a good North Star about how you don't let yourself get buffeted around by the short-term things that are going on and really keep your eyes focused down the road. I have to ask another question, and I and, and Shell and Rachel may have more, but I really do want to hear about corduroy. What are you doing with that? <laughs> I knew you were going to come back And also, I have a style request. Oh. I am, I've been looking <laughs> okay. far and awesome. wide, and I might just get them because I want – there's – N Nilly Lotin, am I saying her name right? You know I love her. Yes, Christina. you are. Yes. She has this wide leg pair of corduroys, and they're a million dollars, and I'm probably going to buy them. But I just, I wish there were more wide leg corduroys. I just think they're so great. <laughs> I agree with you. 
Um, we've got we we just released a great wide yes. leg pant that you should look at. I'm gonna, I'm you gonna should go look. look at it. It's great, and we have been we've had a hard time keeping it in stock, and so it's a bit, it's been great. So this is the the last text that I got from one of my senseis in the in the U.S. supply chain. So me inquiring about can we get corduroy done? The problem is the cutting of the whales. Everything else can be done, but no one has the cutting machine in the U.S. Weaving, shearing, and finishing can be done. So that is a deeply encouraging bit of information because the cutting of the whale is a solvable problem. I'm not sure that I totally think that that's a complete answer because think about furniture upholstery and drapery. And so those two areas tend to be, so for example, there's a, a, a mill in North Carolina called Valdez Mills. They're involved in some of our flannel production. I am quite confident that they're going to be able to produce corduroy for us. So cutting may in fact be a problem. We may have to buy a cutting machine, but I'm optimistic that that is a solvable problem. But that's only the first part. So where it gets complicated from there, as you know, if you followed our flannel journey, Christina, which I know you have a little bit, that getting yarn-dyed flannel reshored was maybe the most, and, and it continues, the most arduous journey we've been on because we were able to assemble three or four years ago a yarn-dyed flannel supply chain that produced a really beautiful product. It, it has turned out that we can't keep that product in stock. It keeps selling out. We've got uh, this year's release happening on Cyber Monday, fingers crossed. We continue to run into really difficult challenges about making sure that we've got the right, and that flannel hops through maybe six or seven steps before it gets to the cut and sew phase. Keep those um, those component providers, suppliers, healthy, vibrant, uh, producing the quality that we need. And so my guess is that the first step is getting the cutting so that we've got the, the component parts built for corduroy. And then the next is moving, let's say, an upholstery capability or furniture capability into um, apparel. We'll keep you guys posted on that, but I am pretty optimistic that we will be able to do that domestically. It's going to be a bit of a journey, but uh, but we're underway on it. But it sounds like you also, at least you suggested you might be buying a cutting machine for corduroy. Have you done that in the past? Supplied people you, with equipment they need? Well, we wouldn't we wouldn't necessarily supply that equipment to somebody. I mean, it, typically what we would do is we would say something like, we will invest in this machine and we'll, assuming that that vendor wanted it, um, and we will we'll pay for it, and then over time we'll amortize a payback of that cost. You can end up owning the machine. If if they're like we don't want it, and we have to just buy that machine, that would be a harder a harder hill to get over because we don't want to be getting into fabric production machinery. My hope is is that um, if that is literally the one piece left, and that we can avoid having to buy the machinery, and and that actually somebody's doing that in some other category. I mean, I, there's a lot of corduroy still being produced for things like furniture, and so they're cutting the whales somehow there. And my guess is that we could redeploy that machinery for our purposes, but but we'll see. My last question for you: You started with a viral video. You had uh, your hoodie was famously called by a slate piece the greatest hoodie ever made. Um, so you, you massively successful viral word of mouth marketing in the early days. I know you talked about no stores, no paid advertising. I know you have since opened some stores, um, and also other things have changed. Obviously, from ten years ago, we're now still semi in a pandemic. We're f- probably facing a recession. I know you've talked about you know focusing on efficiency, but on the marketing, on the brand messaging, on the customer acquisition side, how are you thinking about facing these headwinds? Yeah. So when I started the company. My basic thinking, which is like in retrospect, kind of hopelessly naive, was was we're going to make a really great product. We're going to spend nothing on marketing, 
And we're going to trust the fact that the press is going to care and that customers are going to care and it's going to spread word of mouth. And then to your point, we got really lucky with um, an article written by a guy named Farhad Manju that called the sweatshirt the greatest hoodie ever made. Um, and that's a funny story in its own right. But he basically took the time to dive into what we were doing and how we were doing it, and look at the product. And, um, you know, we poured a year of our lives into making something that we thought was pretty great. And so that article, without that article, I think we, we wouldn't be here, L- literally. I think that article, you know, it put us into a back order status of almost four years, three and a half years of people waiting to get that sweatshirt. I mean, it's still I our biggest seller by far. I mean, and, and, I'm going to have to go get it now, yeah, but I tried I mean, when cre- that happened. I tried. I was like, shit. <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a really crazy thing to be a part of. But um, and a lot of that, by the way, was trying to predict the future. I mean, it was the most important thing about that article, I think, was – just the voracious response among consumers about that. We saw a version of that with with flannel, by the way, which was just such an encouraging shock to me about, oh, people do give a shit about this. Like, it wasn't just some idea I had. Like, there's a huge desire to have this connection to great quality products that are made well. But over time, what happened, which I think is so good, and by the way, to your point, Shall I said no retail stores. Kind of like every other you know, digital brand. We're like, oh, we've just un- unlocked this incredibly efficient way to cut out the middleman, essentially. And over time, some things happened. We, A, started doing digital marketing. And B, we started opening up some retail stores almost by default. So today, where are we? We do too much digital marketing in my mind. So we're, we're actively now cutting that down. Um, and I'm happy to talk about that. Yes, please. We're trying to... Okay, so I'll, so I'll give a quick, quick one on that. So the problem in my mind about digital marketing, if you are a brand that is values-based or mission-based the way that we are, is digital marketing essentially provides a very effective way to transact. And so I can go out there and say, I know that I can get a customer for whatever my high-end acquisition tolerance is. For $30, I go get a customer. And I can follow that, track it, and quite predictably decide I can get 100 customers at that price. What ends up happening is that creates this incredibly powerful centrifugal pull for your dollars to say, oh boy, well, I got 100, maybe I can get 150, maybe I can get 200, maybe I can get 1,000, and maybe I'll go from my $30 to 32 to 34. And it ends up pulling in all the things that you might otherwise spend towards things that are more consistent with what you believe in your value system. And ultimately, I would suggest are way more interesting to to our customers. I would say short-term is the key thing there, that highly ROI, ROIable, you can very easy to see, and very short-term focused. And, and those are totally disconnected from what we want to do as a brand. And so what I want to be doing as a brand is thinking about, and in our factory in North Carolina, we employ about 100 women. It's almost all women. Like 97, 96% of our workforce there is women. They predominantly have uh, their second homeowners. They've got, many of them have children. Um, they got to figure out how to get kids picked up at school. I want to spend my time thinking about how do I address that? How do I figure out how to make it easier for them? Do I Should I open up an after-school program there that's got a tutor with some laptops where their kids can come in and get some decent help after school and allow their moms to get an extra two or three hours of work each day, knowing their kids are right next door and they got a snack and they got a tutor there to help them with their reading or whatever it might be? Maybe that silly example would cost me, I don't know, what do you think, 60 grand, 70 grand a year? And yet I can have an impact on my workforce that allows them to feel like they're valued and that they have a good place for their kids and they're proud to work for the company and we're proud to have them working with us. And um, is that a better or worse use of my 65 grand than to go dump that into Instagram? And so I, that that is where we are now trying to 
really methodically disconnect from our commitment to digital marketing and start to liberate those dollars to reinvest in things that we think are more consistent with what we're trying to do. By the way, also a lot of the, the lean manufacturing principles that we talked about earlier. How do we make those the, the, our factories more efficient, better places to work? How do we empower our team members to have a, a stronger voice in what we're doing wrong on the floor and how we can produce better product? Those are all things that not only are better for our business, but I would argue for consumers that care enough to pay attention, become totally magnetic to the brand. I agree. And it's also changed over years. I think the efficiency and the ROI that you can get out of it has changed drastically. That was my question. Is is that not driven by uh, the fact that Instagram is not that productive anymore? Yeah, but but you know what? If you listen to, you know, the, the, the group of sort of young, what I think of a kind of young Turks of marketing out there, they'll tell you that TikTok's the next thing. I'm sure they're right. That I'm sure there's some arbitrage in TikTok right now. If you rush in and optimize around TikTok, you'll figure out, you know, some way to be really effective there in the same way that Instagram was, you know, three years ago or whatever. And I just think it's a losing person's game. I think there's just a, if, by the way, for brands like Shein and others, go for it. Like that's a, that's a transactional based brand. But if you're trying to have an impact, I, I think it, that your dollars are way better, better spent on the impact than, and, and your customers are going to find out about that stuff. They're going to learn about the brand and, and, and read your catalogs and read your emails and, and understand that, oh, I, that's, a, that's consistent with who, with who I am. I am happy to walk the 75% of customers that don't care about that because the remaining 25% that are thinking about it and reading about it, whether they choose to transact with us or not, that's a fight I'd love to get in. And I'd, like, I'd love, to, love to win or lose that fight based on our ability to kind of invest in what we're trying to change and the, and the impact we're trying to have. Fascinating. And by the way, thank you for mentioning Sheehan. We can never go a week without dumping on Sheehan at Hot Buttons. <laughs> and we almost did it. Thank you. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll come to Sheehan's defense for a moment. Oh. Uh, uh, don't don't, don't, Do don't allow, well, hold on, hold on, hold on, <laughs> hold on. Don't allow, uh, my, my, frankly, my concern about Sheehan is that they end up conveniently taking the spotlight from everybody. And, and they are not alone. There is, a, there is a lot of brands that are in all of our drawers right now that would like you to, they're very effective at their Instagram positioning. They're so excited we're focused on Shein. They are so <laughs> excited we're focused on Shein. And so I think I think what, what has to happen is there we need to figure out a way to, to more effectively shine a light on a lot of the big brands out there that are, you know, on the tip of all of our tongues, um, many of whom purport to, you know, uh, uh, live in a or, or market an American brand that, that don't that don't um, uh, operate consistently with that image or those values. So I, I would just say that Shein is maybe the, the worst offender, but they're not alone. And, and I hope they, I hope they doesn't allow us to too quickly dismiss our, our concerns or vent our concerns with just them as the target because there's there's a lot of offenders in that category. Good point. And I think that's a wrap. We kept you longer than we meant to. You guys are awesome. Thank you for having me on. You're awesome. Always. Please keep doing what you're doing. We need more intelligent discussions going on about the apparel industry. I really appreciate I mean it. I really appreciate it. That's all for the show. Please support us by following us on Twitter at Hot Buttons Pod and now on Instagram at hotbuttons.pod. Or send a link to friends or colleagues and go to Apple or Spotify and give us a rating. We're also streaming on Amazon Music. We really appreciate your support. If you want to email us with story ideas, send a note to hotbuttons at postscriptaudio.com or leave us a voicemail at our new call-in line. It's at 508-622-5361. Give us a call. Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Sheila Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by Postscript Media. Our senior editor is Anne Bailey. Our engineers are Greg Frank and Sean Marquand. Cecily Meza-Martinez is our managing producer. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, 
and Rachel Kibbe are our executive producers. Postscript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks for joining us. We will catch up with you next week. <laughs>